Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Immigration Advocates Network podcast. My name is Dina Knott and I am the Volunteer and Community Education Coordinator and in AmeriCorps VISTA at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Kirsten Rambo, Executive Director at Assista Immigration Assistance about the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, and its reauthorization process. Dr. Rambo has over 20 years of experience at institutions that seek to prevent domestic and sexual violence. Prior to her time at Assista, she held leadership roles at the CDC's Division of Violence Prevention, the Georgia Commission on Family Violence, and the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence, in addition to being a visiting assistant professor at Emory University. Welcome, Dr. Rambo. Thank you. It's great to be here with you, Dina. It's so wonderful to have you on. So to start us off, could you give us a brief overview of what VAWA is and how it came to be? Sure. So the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, is federal legislation that was first passed in 1994. It passed following about a four-year legislative effort that was initiated by Joe Biden, who was then a senator from Delaware. Of course, that legislative advocacy followed decades of work from the activist and the advocacy communities who were pushing for recognition that gender-based violence, such as domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking, for instance, were not just private family matters and should be taken seriously. And that was really the general approach and understanding in our society prior to that, that advocates were pushing against this idea that it was just a, a private family matter. And that was one of the main things that VAWA was seeking to correct. So after all of those efforts from the advocates and legislative efforts, all of those efforts culminated in VAWA, passage of VAWA. And um, it was President Bill Clinton who signed that bill, that first VAWA bill into law. What VAWA did, there was a big focus on domestic violence initially in VAWA. So VAWA established the National Domestic Violence Hotline, created training programs for law enforcement, for courts, for advocates and others, created the Federal Office on Violence Against Women, which is housed in the Department of Justice. And that office was set up to administer those training and other programs that VAWA created, as well as administering the funding for them. As I say, the original focus of VAWA was largely on DV or domestic violence and then Subsequent versions added the focus on sexual assault, dating, violence, and stalking. VAW has been reauthorized four different times in 2000, 2005, 2013, and then just last month. So every time it's reauthorized, you know, there are new things added to the bill. Like I said, increasing protections for sexual assault and stalking, et cetera, also increasing protections for Native Americans, for LGBTQ survivors, um, survivors of sex trafficking, et cetera. Wonderful. Thank you for that background and overview. You mentioned VAWA reauthorization. What is VAWA reauthorization? 
Yeah, legislation can contain authorizing language that either creates or extends or changes a particular program. And that language allows Congress to allocate funding to that program. There's also an appropriations process, which happens each year and determines how much funding gets allocated to those programs each year. So even though a program is authorized, it's not a guarantee that funding will be appropriated for that program. And likewise, even when that authorization expires, which has happened with VAWA, the funding appropriation can continue, which is something that has happened in the past. So when we think about VAWA reauthorization, we think about a bill that exists, you know, and has existed for a long time, but usually gets reauthorized for a set period of years into the future. And as that expiration date looms, the bill needs to be reauthorized. And that's an opportunity for advocates and Congress to go ahead and update and make changes to the program, in addition to making sure that it, it continues to get funded into the future. Thank you. So for those of us who may be a little rusty on civics, what specific things had to happen in previous times and just this recent reauthorization for the reauthorization bill to be passed, to go through? Sure, so, you know, VAWA reauthorization really follow the typical legislative process. So, you know, the bill is drafted and introduced. In our case, this latest version of VAWA, this is a bill that started in the House of Representatives. Once it's introduced, it goes to a committee like House Judiciary. There's a markup process where they can make amendments, and then it goes to a floor vote. Once the House passed its version of VAWA, it gets sent over to the Senate. In this case, as often happens, the Senate was working on its own version of VAWA. So the Senate, they had their own bill, and this was a bipartisan bill, which was very, very similar to the House version, and that's the one that ended up passing. Typically, once the, once the House and Senate versions uh, match up, you need to get them to agree. Then it goes to the president for signature. And this latest reauthorization, the Senate version of VAWA was included as part of a much larger bill that was moving, which was the big omnibus spending bill. So this version of VAWA got included as part of that appropriations bill, kind of at the very end of the process. And that is how it ultimately became law. How would you say that previous reauthorizations have gone from your position as an advocate and expert? Um, and then afterwards, we can talk about how this one went. Sure. You know, it's always a struggle with any process like this. It's always a struggle balancing the needs of different groups. When I say that, you know, people might automatically think, oh, Republicans versus Democrats, which is for sure the case. I mean, you would think and you would hope that gender-based violence would be a bipartisan issue. But unfortunately, there's always, there's always resistance. And uh, much of that does break down along party lines, as we've seen. But in addition to party lines, there are different advocacy groups who are interested in the way that VAWA 
ends up looking and working to influence that. So when I say advocacy groups, you could think, for instance, of the NRA to cite a very extreme example. They're very interested in the firearm provisions of VAWA. So there are groups well outside of the realm of sort of gender-based violence advocates who are very interested in what happens with VAWA. And then even among the advocates who are pushing for VAWA reauthorization, there are different interests to be balanced. So there are groups that are advocating for the rights of Native and Indigenous survivors, groups advocating for LGBTQ plus rights, groups like us advocating for immigrant survivors and communities of color specifically, and many, many more. And of course, many of those groups that I just named intersect and overlap, right? So balancing and advancing the needs of all of those groups is part of this reauthorization process. And as you can imagine, there's tension between Vavawa's roots as part of a crime bill, which is how Vawa started out, as part of a big crime bill, very much tied to the criminal legal system with a heavy focus on accountability in the form of policing and carceral solutions. And then the recognition that that particular system has failed many communities many times and is often not the solution or the safe haven that we might hope it is. So there's this tension that just comes along with the history of VAWA and really the history of the movement to end gender-based violence, where, as I said, there was this deep desire for recognition that, hey, this isn't just a private family matter. This is something that needs to be taken seriously by the state. And the way that that manifested, particularly as a, as a result of it being part of a crime bill, was a heavy focus on law enforcement, courts, judges, etc., investment in those spaces, uh, in training for, for, for judges and law enforcement, for instance, and, you know, grant programs that had names like grants to encourage arrest. So balancing that with, I think, this growing awareness that those systems often are not the solution that many have hoped they would be, and listening to survivors often tells you that. Not to say that there's no place for those for those arenas or those solutions. Certainly, they have a role. But trying to unpack that and figure out what's the right balance with this legislation in terms of accountability while not feeding into the prison industrial complex, all the problems that come with over-incarceration is a challenge. So when I say balancing all these needs, there are a lot of different elements that go into it. Thank you. That's so interesting. From the tension with the criminal legal system to the groups involved, such as, I mean, you're right, I would never think that the NRA, I just wouldn't associate it right away with FAWA. That's not an easy connection, I think, for uh, a layperson to make, but that there really are all of these different groups and interests involved. Right. How and to what extent does this reauthorization process tangibly impact women and immigrant women? Yeah, well, you know, just to be really clear, I will say 
previous versions of VAWA have been much more impactful for immigrant survivors than this latest one. So initially you had the VAWA self-petition, right? And that is a really great mechanism that allows spouse or child of U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident or parent of an adult U.S. citizen son or daughter to get relief. So it's basically a way of saying that your path to legal status doesn't have to be tied to this person who is harming you, right? And so the VAWA self-petition was a way of recognizing that for abusers who are in that category of U.S. citizen or LPR, right, lawful permanent resident, holding someone's immigration status is such a powerful tool, such a powerful way, unfortunately, to abuse someone is to hold that status over their head. And there are folks who choose to do harm and do it exactly that way, leaving survivors in a really, 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 really unsafe and terrible position. So the VAWA self-petition is a fabulous recognition that, nope, we can decouple those things and you can pursue your own path to legal status independent of that abusive partner that's trying to hold that status over you as a way of expanding their power and control over you. So that came along initially in 2000, you had the creation of the U visa, which is a little bit different, right? The U visa to access that if you're a victim of a qualifying crime, which includes these crimes of gender based violence, like domestic violence and sexual assault, the person who's harming you for the purpose of a U visa doesn't have to be a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident. They're the citizenship status doesn't matter for the purpose of the U visa. What matters is that you have been helpful or will be helpful in the investigation or prosecution of the crime of which you were a victim. And so uh, going back to that piece about uh, about ties to the criminal legal system, you know, the U visa is a great example of where that just gets really complicated but has been a mechanism that has helped so many people to safety, you know, on their on their path to status. So that came along in 2000 in that reauthorization, the 2005 reauthorization, among other things, added protections for abused children and parents and allowed survivors to apply for work authorization. And Anyone who thinks about gender-based violence and particularly something like domestic violence, you think about economic independence as a key driver of getting free from abuse, right? And so if you're not able to lawfully work, and in fact, if you work unlawfully, there are harsh punishments for that, right? And so that leaves immigrant survivors in a very, very, very challenging um, situation. So this piece about access to work authorization is incredibly important as a tool for safety for survivors. So, you know, all along the way, we can see where these prior authorizations had elements in them that were so helpful, have been really helpful for immigrant survivors. Very sorry to say this most recent reauthorization does not include 
particular provisions that expand protections for immigrant survivors, which is very candidly, that's a, that's a really big disappointment. So there's so much to celebrate in this, this latest version of VAWA in terms of protections for LGBTQ survivors, native survivors, um, prevention measures, expanded resources for sexual assault, training, increased funding for grant programs. I mean, there is a lot to celebrate, but there's nothing in there that is, that is new and additional. Uh, new or additional for immigrant survivors. And again, we recognize that immigrant survivors also fall into several of the other categories I just mentioned, right? These communities are not siloed. So undoubtedly there are protections, for instance, for LGBTQ survivors that will benefit immigrant survivors who identify that way. There's a lot of increased support for culturally specific programming in this version of VAWA, which is wonderful, and that will benefit immigrant survivors as well. But there's nothing in this version that is along the lines of those other things I mentioned where it's like, oh, now we've got the UVs, and now we've got this piece around work authorization. There's, there's nothing specific for immigrant survivors in this version of VAWA. Thank you for your candor. It's much appreciated. And uh, that does seem sort of like a bittersweet place to land with this, with this whole process. But um, if you're able, could you tell me a little bit about the advocacy that you and Isista uh, did around the most recent reauthorization process? Sure. Yeah. I will say that our advocacy. We really do in coordination with a couple groups that I want to name and shout out. So um, at ASISTA, we are um, one of four organizations that make up the immigration subcommittee of the National Task Force to End Sexual and Domestic Violence. And that's a large group of advocates who are really driving VAWA forward and working closely with members of Congress and the administration, et cetera. So that's the national task force that we often refer to as NTF. And we're with three other orgs. We're the co-chairs of that immigration subcommittee. That same group of four of us, which includes the Tahari Justice Center, Esperanza United, and APIGBV, which is the Asian Pacific Institute on Gender-Based Violence, those three groups and us also form the leadership of the Alliance for Immigrant Survivors, which is a broad coalition of groups around the country. Could be DV, domestic violence or sexual assault organizations, could be um, immigration practitioners who are all interested in these issues about things that affect immigrant survivors of gender-based violence. And so much of our advocacy around this happens with those groups and through those groups, AIS, the Alliance for Immigrant Survivors, and NTF, that national task force that I mentioned. In this reauthorization of AWA, we met early on with folks from House Judiciary to talk about this next version of AWA and to share our concerns about what we had hoped for and protections that we felt needed to be included for immigrant survivors. There was a great 
you know, receptivity and a great understanding about that. But ultimately, that's not the version that moved forward in the House or in the Senate. Again, much to our frustration, there was, I think, a lot of a lot of reason for that from the congressional perspective. There was a lot of desire to go ahead and get this done, get the bill done. There was a version of VAWA that passed the House several years ago, and there was an idea that adhering as closely as we could to that prior version would probably help to make the process go more quickly and actually be able to achieve passage of the bill, which is, you know, an understandable strategy, right? That version that passed uh, under a prior administration did not contain, again, anything in there for immigrant survivors. And so, again, you know, you think about this balancing act and there's another tension between getting what you want in the bill and getting the bill to actually pass. And that's in some ways the fundamental tension, right? I think, you know, for us and for all the other groups I named and so many more, I mean, there are groups working on housing, there are groups working on firearms, it's just a really long list of folks interested in trying to make this bill as broad and expansive and helpful as it can be for survivors. You know, I think for us and for all those groups, there's so much more that we would like to see VAWA do and more that we would like to see VAWA be. And it's always this tension between getting everything you want in the bill and getting a bill that can actually get the votes to pass. It's not surprising probably to anyone listening to this podcast that immigration is a really challenging issue, you know, in the field right now, legislatively and in our society and having it included in VAWA the fight for that and and the fact that it ended up not being included in this version of VAWA, I think is a reflection of that broader struggle that we're in right now as a country trying to decide who are we, who do we want to be when it comes to welcoming people from other countries. So just to be clear, there were no rollbacks in this bill for immigrant survivors. And what I mean for that is the protections that I've talked about still exist in the bill. They're still there. Everything I, I've named, it, nothing got rolled back or deleted. And of course, we're happy about that. We just always want to see things moving forward. And there are lots and lots of ways that VAWA could be used to better protect immigrant survivors. Immigrant survivors deserve safety, deserve safe paths to citizenship. And VAWA is a great way for that to possibly happen. Yeah, as you can tell, I really have some uh, have some feelings about the fact that that's not reflected in this version of all. It's it's so it's so frustrating. You can step back and look at the legislative process and how the sausage gets made, as they say, uh, and see how these things happen. But the fact that that's where it ended up means we have lots and lots of work still to do. And at least for right now, VAWA will not be the way, will not be the mechanism for those things happening. This version of VAWA that just passed is authorized through 2027, which again is wonderful because of all the good stuff that's in there. On one hand, it's great. It also tells us, you know, we have a lot of work to do and it's not gonna happen through VAWA. We're certainly not waiting till 2027 to push these things forward. And uh, that means we have to find other ways 
to get some things done for immigrant survivors that we that we had hoped might happen through VAWA. So we just need to look for other avenues because at Asista and also with the other partners that we mentioned, we're certainly not interested in just waiting until the next uh, the next reauthorization opportunity comes around for VAWA because immigrant survivors need that support now, right? We feel a lot of urgency about this. You know, people are living their lives now. People are living in danger now. People are seeking status now. People are separated from their children now. And so we need to move ahead. And while we're grateful for the good stuff in VAWA, we know that we need to find other ways to get some of these things done. Got it. Well, thank you. And I know that you are set to move forward and are not going to wait around for the next reauthorization process, but one more question on VAWA, ideally, just to park and back. Um, What are the most important things that I guess you would have liked to see added to VAWA? How much time do you have? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, There's there's so much that that still needs to be done. You know, one thing we could talk all day about U visas and the fact that they have been so helpful and also some of the challenges that come with U visas. One is the fact that there is a cap sort of arbitrarily imposed cap of 10,000 per year. So there are so many folks who need U visas. There's no cap on victimization, right? But there's a cap on the number of U visas that the country will grant, which is 10,000 per year. And what that means right now is we usually hit that cap right about this time of year. So around now, March, April, we hit our 10,000 and that's it for the year. So what that means is we've got a backlog that is getting really close to 300,000 individuals with pending U visa matters. And this backlog just keeps growing because of that cap that we've got. So the processing time that it takes just to get on the wait list right now is over five years, as you can imagine. And um, the listeners can imagine the the limbo that folks are in um, and the danger that folks are in waiting for these cases to be adjudicated. Again, five years just to get on the wait list is just an unacceptably long period of time. And so all those delays subject survivors and their kids to a higher risk of, of course, ongoing violence and trauma. So we would just love to see the cap lifted there's not really a need for that cap. As I said, it's it's sort of arbitrary. So we'd love to see the cap lifted. That's something that needs to happen. There are also some of those visas that in the earliest days of the program went unused. There are a bunch of those that could be used now to help reduce some of that backlog. That's one big, big wish list. As I also mentioned about the U visa program, it currently requires that the person who is the victim of the crime, whatever the crime may be, is cooperating in the investigation or prosecution of that crime. Law enforcement has to sign a certification in order for that application to proceed. And that has proven to be really challenging, requiring ongoing training of law enforcement. Law enforcement frequently doesn't feel comfortable signing or doesn't fully understand what their piece of the process is. 
And without that law enforcement certification, that U visa is not going forward. So figuring out smart ways to kind of decouple those two pieces is something that we talk about a lot that would be really helpful. We talked a little bit earlier about work authorization and just how critical that is for survivors being able to provide for themselves and their children. It is great that that's a thing that can happen, but it often just takes so, so long. So we love to see work authorizations be issued within six months of someone making their application. That would be really a game changer in terms of survivors seeking safety. These are, you know, I'm just giving you a little bit of a wish list here. Um, Along that same line, um, access to public benefits is also really crucial in terms of, you know, food, housing, healthcare, all the sort of real basic needs of life. And so right now there's a bar that prevents immigrant survivors with pending cases from accessing those benefits for five years. And again, you just think about the way that that exposes survivors to real risk, right? Because anything that increases your dependence on the person who's abusing you is something that we want to avoid. So we'd love to see that five-year bar eliminated so that survivors and their kids can access benefits that they need to get safe, like, as I say, food, housing, healthcare, childcare, things like that. And then I would say, too, just preventing the deportation of immigrant survivors who have immigration cases pending. Right now, there's nothing uh, stopping the government from deporting or detaining immigrant survivors, even while they're waiting for their applications to be adjudicated. And as I said, that's an extremely long process, right? Five years just to get on the waiting list. And so to be that vulnerable to deportation or detention during that time is really unacceptable. And what we would love to see is a new process where if you're waiting on that VAWA self-petition, for instance, that you can't be deported while you're waiting for that to be adjudicated. It seems only fair that you don't get deported or put in detention before anyone's even looked at what you've submitted, looked at your application for relief. So those are some of the big things that we would love to see happen. And I say they're big things because they're so crucial for safety, but they're not big in the sense of hard to do, right? These are things that could really happen pretty readily and would have a huge impact on survivor safety. So so those are some of the things on our wish list. Thank you. Before we close the podcast episode, Is there anything else that you want to mention about VAWA or advocating for survivors' rights in general, immigrant survivors' rights, or your work? You know, I think folks who are interested in these issues, we'd love to have you join the effort. Um, The Alliance for Immigrant Survivors is a great way to plug in and just, you know, it's free and you can come to the website and sign up to get our emails and things like that. Of course, Joining ASISTA is another fantastic way for folks who are concerned with these issues. You know, we have memberships. You can join as a member. You can have access to our listservs and case assistance and our trainings. We are at assistahelp.org. And then AIS is at immigrantsurvivors.org. 
And I would say those are two great resources for staying up to date and plugging in to some of these policy efforts, these advocacy efforts to improve safety and justice for immigrant survivors of gender-based violence. Thank you. All right. So that's A-S-I-S-T-A help.org. And we will put both of those links on the page where we post this podcast episode so that people can click them and reach you guys. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Dina. It was great talking with you.